can learn to not compromise in matters of faith. Uh, Pastor Ron a couple of weeks ago encouraged us to the story of the prophet Samuel uh, to learn to listen to God's leading. And then last week, talked about learning to count with the story of Gideon and his army. This week, we're going to be talking about learning to see uh, through the story of the prophet Elisha, or one of the stories of the prophet Elisha uh, in 2 Kings. Uh, so just for a little bit of context, uh, the story that we're going to be talking about this morning comes from 2 Kings 6. Um, it's a pretty popular story, uh, but just a little bit of context before we get there. Um, the first and second Kings really tells the story of Israel after, Israel's life after King David and after King Solomon. And Solomon has just died, and Israel has been split into two kingdoms. There's the northern kingdom Israel and the southern kingdom Judah. And pretty much both of the books just talk about how good or bad these kings ruled both the kingdoms. And, well, for the most part, most of the kings were bad. Uh, some of them were really, really bad. Um, there was about 40 kings altogether, and maybe out of the 40, eight were good. Not, really, most of them were really bad. They drove uh, Israel into idolatry. They worshipped false gods. They, uh, injustice reigned. It was a really, really bad season of time. In fact, Israel was just in a bad place overall. Um, their leaders were not faithful to God, and ultimately what we'll see is God will lead Israel into uh, exile when the Babylonians come and uh, capture them. So it's really going to be the darkest season of Israel's entire history. But before that happens, the author of First and Second Kings, he gives us these glimpses of hope in the background in the form of the prophets. Um, these prophets are not necessarily fortune tellers, but they're men who were called by and sent from God to be God's mouthpiece, to speak on God's behalf, to encourage God's people to play their role in the covenant relationship that God had called them into, to confront and call out uh, idolatry and injustice, and to really challenge the people of God to repent and follow the word of God. This is, this is what the prophets were called to do. And in 1 Kings, we see primarily it's the prophet Elijah, and then in 2 Kings, it's primarily the prophet Elisha. And that's who we're going to be talking about this morning is the second prophet. So the story that we're looking at starts in 2 Kings 6, verse 8. And it has a very similar tone that you would expect with Israel being in a bad place. It doesn't start off very good. Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. Aram's mentioned a couple times throughout Scripture. It's just northern of just north of Israel. Um, it's what is modern day Syria, and that's where the city of Aleppo is. Um, and what happens is the king of Aram decides that he's going to set camps alongside the borders of Israel because when the battles come, they'll have a strategic advantage, and you know they'll be closer than farther away, and that'll be good for them. And this is where Elisha comes into the picture. Uh, Elisha actually has an audience with the king of Israel, and the king of Israel is listening to what he says, and this is what Elisha says. The man of God, being Elisha, sent word to the king of Israel, beware of passing that place because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God, Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on guard in such places. What Elisha is doing is he's offering this incredibly valuable counterintelligence in times of war. He's telling the king, this is where your enemy is going to be. Every single time, God tells him, here's where he's going to be. Here's where he's going to be. Go check it out. And every single time where Elisha says the enemy is going to be, that's where they are. And so the, the king of Aram and the, city, or the nation of Aram aren't allowed to actually set up the camps that they want to set up. And you can imagine that this did not sit well with the king of Aram. It says, this enraged him. And he summoned his officers and demanded of them, tell me which one of us is on the side of the king of Israel. 
It's like, look, this has got to be an inside job. There's no way they're that smart. There's no way that they can know every single time just by luck. One of you has to be a mole. One of you has to be giving them information. Who is it? I'm sick and tired of this. Tell me who it is. And they say, none of us, my lord the king, said one of his officers. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. Don't know how we got this information, but they just they know that Elisha is able to hear what the king is saying when he shouldn't be able to hear it. So the king wisely realizes, hey, forget the battles, forget establishing these camps. If we take out this guy, our problems will be gone. If we take out this guy, they're not going to be able to know where we are, and maybe we'll be able to make some progress. So king says, go find out where he is so I can send men and capture him. The report came back, he is in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. So he catches a break. He finds the person who's been causing him all this trouble. He knows his whereabouts. So he sends some chariots. He sends horses, an army, a strong army at night when they least expect it, surrounds them, and they've got him captured, right? And it's good place to be, Dothan. It's not too far away from where they're at, but it's also not too close to the enemy. The king is really hoping, hey, I'm going to be able to capture and probably kill Elisha without losing many of my men or many of my men being captured. It's going to be really good for him. And this is where the action picks up. This is where it gets good. Imagine you're waking up for the first time in the morning. You're going outside. It's a normal day. And then all of a sudden, you see an army surrounding you. When the servant of the man of God, so this is Elisha's servant, got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? Now, we can imagine... The, this scene, this terror, this fear that the servant must have felt. Um, he, he's just getting up, and all of a sudden, he is completely surrounded. This, this threat of death, this imminent doom, is staring him right in the face when he least expected it. I mean, this is, this, this is do or die, this is life or death, and he was not expecting this at all. We, can, we, we may not face this danger exactly. I don't know how many of us have been surrounded by uh, a rival army, but we do know this feeling that he says, which is, oh no, what are we going to do? All of us woke up in November when there was snow, before Thanksgiving on our driveway and said, oh no, what are we going to do? I still haven't gotten my leaves out. That was, that was my story. Um, but more seriously, I know I've felt this before in my life, um, but you, you, get, you get a bill and you don't even want to open it, an invoice, you don't even want to open it because it's, I know I don't have the money to pay for that. Oh no, what am I going to do? burned bridges, burned relationships. There's been dramas that we've been had, had to deal with in life, whether it's friends or business relationships, where we know we're just going to have to continually confront an area where we've messed up, and there doesn't seem to be a way forward. Oh no, what are we going to do? I've unfortunately been the recipient of this. You wake up or you get a phone call out of nowhere and you receive information on the other side of the phone that changes the trajectory of your life forever oh no, what am I going to do? Uh, Some people have gone to hospital visits and awaiting hopefully the best results of their life when in reality they get the worst and the only feeling you have is, oh no, what am I going to do? That feeling of, what am I going to do? The servant, you can imagine, his heart is rising up to his throat. There's just these knots and these butterflies in his stomach. Failure seems to be the only logical end 
and this servant at this time is facing, looking at what is going to most likely be his last moments on earth. He's looking his destruction right in the face. All hope seems to be lost. God seems to have vanished completely out of the picture, and this is how Elisha responds to him. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. You've got to imagine that the servant in this moment probably whipped his neck around so fast to gave him a whiplash to say, what are you talking about? Are you not, are you blind? I, clearly you're not blind, you're seeing what's going on, but we're seeing two different things. There's two of us and there's a lot of them. We're about to die. What are you talking about? There's more with them than was with us. And Elisha prayed, said, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes And he looked, and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now, what follows is this series of events where Elisha and his servant ultimately are going to be delivered. And ironically, their enemies are driven right into the capital of their enemies. It's a really cool story of how God moved in in the most unlikely of circumstances. But what we want to return to what we want to talk about this morning is that, that phrase that Elisha says, Open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. See what? For the servant in that moment, it was the assurance that God's armies were greater than the armies of his enemies. In that moment for the servant, he believed that he was outnumbered. And when God opened his eyes to see, in reality, he saw, no, actually, my enemies are outnumbered. But I don't necessarily think that's what Elisha explicitly wanted the servant to see. I don't think it was, Lord, this one time, and just for a moment, since he's asking me this question, let him see all these chariots and let him see what I see. No, I think what Elisha was praying was he was saying, Lord, all he can see right now is what he can see. All he's able to see right now is what he can see. Lord, open his eyes so that he can see what you can see. Open his eyes, Lord, so that he can see both sides of the story, both sides of the narrative. God, open his eyes so that he can see in a way that you've enabled me to see the world. And as I was talking with Pastor Ron about this this week, he said that Elisha had something that I think that he was praying for the servant, which is Elisha had something called Christian double vision, that he was able to what he was asking ultimately for his servant was that God would open his eyes and give him Christian double vision. Because I think that's what Elisha had. Elisha didn't skip a beat, not a a beat of sweat dropped from his forehead when he saw Aram's armies. And why? It's because Elisha saw the world differently. He had Christian double vision, and that's what we're going to talk about for the rest of this morning. Um, how, what is it, and, and, and how do we see God moving in our lives uh, when, when it's not so easy to do that? So first and foremost, what is Christian double vision? Well, double vision typically is seeing two of everything, and that's not fun, and it's annoying. But Christian double vision means seeing everything, but seeing it in two ways. First and foremost, seeing it with our human eyes. Okay, the way that we're used to seeing things, but then also seeing with the eyes of faith. And this is something that we desperately, desperately want to have. Double vision itself is actually super annoying and taxing, I would imagine. Um, but Christian double vision is something that we want because when we're able to see the world through this, this lens, with the eyes of what we're typically used to seeing through and then the eyes of faith, it changes the way that we interact with everything, with everyone, even with God. It's something that we desperately want to have, and I think that's because three things happen when we live with Christian double vision. First and foremost, we see that we are never alone. 
I think more than anything else, that's what this story communicates about learning to see and learning to live with Christian double vision is that we are never alone. You can imagine the servant in this moment felt alone. We don't know how many people were in Dothan when they surrounded them, but the text seems to imply that it was just him and Elisha and an entire army. And you can imagine that in that moment he felt deserted. He felt like, where is God in this moment? Absolutely alone and isolated. And so often in times of trouble and distress in our own lives, we can feel like that feeling of isolation and loneliness is just kind of what comes a part of the package. In fact, it's really living with single vision isn't easy. Okay? Especially in times of trouble, especially in times of distress, living with single vision really isn't easy because what we can start to convince ourselves of is that we are all alone. When we live with single vision, one of the things that can happen is we can convince ourselves that no one understands and nobody gets it. I am alone in everything that I'm dealing with. I've experienced this when my dad was killed when I was 18 years old. There was not a thing you could have told me to make me feel like you understood what I was going through. There's not a single thing that you could have told me to, or, no, you don't get it. That's fine. You may have gone through some stuff, but that was my dad. Okay, that was my dad. Your dad is going to be able to see your wife one day. Your dad is going to be able to see your kids one day. Your dad is going to be at your wedding. Don't tell me that you understand what I'm going through. I'm the only person that feels this hurt. I'm the only person. I'm alone in this. With, double, with single vision, that is how I felt so often. I would get so angry with people trying to say, I get where you're coming from. Uh, I was talking with my wife this week as, as I was thinking about this story, and unfortunately, when she was 18, she was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. And praise be to God, she is completely healed from it now, and we praise God for that every single day. But there was a season, literally during her radiation, that she had to be physically isolated from everyone for seven days. Physically, like, could not touch, could not go near her family members. Her mom had to put food in one part of the house and then get a certain amount of feet away before Jamie could come because if she got near them, she would make them sick. It would not be a good situation. I can imagine with single vision in times like those, we can go, no one understands this. No one gets it. It's not always easy living a single vision, but when we're, able, when we're able to see with Christian double vision, not just how we see the world, but through the eyes of faith and how God is moving, we can know, when we know that God is always with us, it gives us the strength to stay faithful even when we're surrounded, even when we lose loved ones, even when we literally feel isolated. With Christian double vision, we're able to see that we are never alone because God is always with us. Even in our lowest valleys, and even when we literally feel like we're the only person there and no one else gets it, we have God. God has sent his Son, and he dwells among us. God has given us his Holy Spirit. We are never alone because God is always with us. So that's the first thing, is that we see that we're never alone. And this story in particular I think illustrates this part of what living with Christian double vision is like, but there's other parts of scripture that point to other elements of what life is like when we live with Christian double vision. That second one is we see that God often works through the small things to make big impacts. I think a lot of the time we think of, when we think of how the world changes today, we think that it changes in a few places with the right people. We often think that the world changes in big places, right? The world changes in Washington, D.C., where the lawmakers are, and they decide how our lives are going to be governed. If you want to be famous, you have to move to Hollywood. Okay, you can't stay in the middle of the country. If you've got potential, the way you're going to make an impact is if you go to one of the coasts, primarily Hollywood, because that's how you become famous. That's how the, the big changes in your life start to happen. When we see with single vision... 
we convince ourselves that the biggest changes happen in the biggest places and with the grandest gestures. But when we see through the eyes of faith, when we see with Christian double vision, we see that throughout Scripture, God changes the world with small things and in small places. Especially as we think about celebrating Advent. Uh, coming up shortly here. Um, Jesus was born to young parents that didn't have a clue and didn't have a place to stay. He was born with farm animals and amongst lowly shepherds, tucked in a really, really small corner, insignificant corner of the world in Bethlehem. But God used that to make a huge, huge impact. Moses was just this baby boy destined for death in a basket in the Nile River, and God plucked him out and used him to deliver his people. David Youngest of his brothers. And when Samuel came to David's father and said, I, I'm supposed to find the king of Israel here, his dad didn't even consider that he would be someone who would be picked by God. He was the small kid that tended after sheep. And when he was in the army, all he did was play the harp for the king. And when he went to go face Goliath, all he had was a little sling. God uses small things at small places to make big impacts. And we see that when we live with Christian double vision and and when we can be sure of this, that God uses small things to make a big impact, we can live our lives knowing that everything that we do counts. Every small thing that we do counts. With the eyes of faith, we see that God takes our little acts and uses them in big ways. Let me tell you, folks, I would not be standing here today if it was not for the faithful prayers of what the world would consider small people in insignificant places. When I came to, to, to faith in Christ and when I decided I wanted to go into ministry, I'm not saying it's a big impact for here. It's a big impact in my life. I can't tell you how many people came to me, called me, wrote me letters and said, I was praying for you every single day. And you know what? I'm sure that a lot of times they felt those prayers were insignificant. But every single prayer counts. Every single smile that we can give to people. Every show of Christian hospitality. Every time we we love our neighbor as we love ourselves out of the love that we've received from God. God can take that and make have, make a big, big impact in our world. When we think about our building and our new addition as we look to build, every single dollar counts. And it doesn't count to just build the structure. Every single dollar counts, whether it was a lot or whether it was few. Every single dollar we believe through faith in God that that is going to be something that impacts and transforms generations and generations of people that come here to Hillside. God sees and he uses the smallest things to make great impacts. And with our vision, a lot of times we convince ourselves, again, that the biggest changes happen in the biggest places and with the biggest people. But with, when we live with Christian double vision, when we live with not only what we can see, but with the eyes of faith, we can be confident that God can change the world in Cutlerville, in Caledonia, in Byron Center, in Grand Rapids, through the faithful prayers and through the faithful acts of what the world might consider small people in small places. When we live with Christian double vision, we can be convinced that through our loving uh, little acts of loving God and loving others that God can make huge impacts. Third, um, we see that we can serve God in everything that we do. Uh, we, here at church, in your homes, in your cubicles, in your office, if you're a driver, when you're driving, when you're shoveling snow, uh, there's no separation between our religious lives and our everyday lives. There's no compartmentalization. You don't just serve God when you come to church, if, whether it's in the nursery or middle school or high school. You don't just serve God when you come to women in the Word. You don't just serve God when you're at church. You serve God everywhere and in every season. 
The Apostle Paul said this in Colossians 3, 23, verse 24. Whatever you do, not whatever you do when, not whenever you do if, not whenever you do any sort of qualifier, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Okay, not the businesses, not, the, not, not specific people. You are serving Christ. And your labor, when done in the name of Christ, is not in vain. When we live with Christian double vision, we can know that you cannot do something in the name of Jesus. You cannot do something in the name of Jesus without God using it some way, somehow. We go through life a lot of the times thinking that we're the small things that we're doing or whatever, it's making such a small little impact or it's completely insignificant. But when we live with Christian double vision, we know that even the smallest, even the most mundane of tasks, when done in the name of the Lord, God can take that and use it in some way, shape, or form. Martin Luther King Jr. said this. He said, If a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep streets even as Michelangelo painted or Beethoven composed music or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will pause to say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. Now, why do we want to do work well? Why, why, why should street sweepers even do their job really well? Because if we sweep streets, if we check people out at Mire, if we prepare someone's taxes, if we clean teeth at a dentist's office, if you're a salesperson to make sales calls to people who you know want nothing to do with you and all they want to do is hang up, if you do it in the name of the Lord, if you do it in the name of God, serving in the name of God, somewhere, somehow, God is going to use that. When we see with Christian double vision, we're convinced that in all that we do, whatever we do in the name of the Lord, God will use that in the process of redeeming and reclaiming everything back to himself for that day that we wait for Jesus to come back. Everything that we do in the name of the Lord can be used, and it is not in vain. So, oops, those are the three things that happen. When we live with Christian double vision, we see that we're never alone. We see that God often works through the small things to make a big impact. And we see that we can serve God in everything that we do. Now, if you're like me, you read that and go, awesome. I would love if I could go through life every single day and going, that is my reality. But a lot of the times it's very difficult to do that. So it sounds great, but the question becomes, how? How do we learn to see with Christian double vision? How do we learn to see the ways that God is moving and where he's moving? How do we train our eyes? How do we train our hearts to be able to notice and recognize where God is moving? I want to say three things. As we're learning to see, as we're learning to try and see with Christian double vision, first thing we need to do is we need to recognize that we're not always going to see clearly. Okay, in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, the Apostle Paul says, For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. But now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. Now, basically what he's saying is, look, we're working with the best vision that we've got. Right? Now, the vision that we have, it, it, to be completely frank, is a good vision because we're working with the vision of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected and the blood of Jesus. It should change the way that we see the world. We do see the world differently than most people. We can have hope when there's no hope to be found, but we even have to recognize that right now we're still working with what we've got. One day, 
One day we'll be able to see clearly. When Jesus does return and, and, and God reclaims everything back to himself and redeems all things, I do think that we're going to be able to see God clearly moving in every single circumstance. But we have to recognize that right now, until we wait for Jesus to return, we're, gonna, we're working with the best that we've got. And we will not always see clearly. And we have to continually remind ourselves of that. So that's the first step. But the second is we need to ask God in prayer to open our eyes. And why? That might seem like, yeah, well, I could have told you that it was going to be prayer, but what we see in the text is that's what Elisha did. That is what Elisha did. It's how the servant saw. And even as we pray, even as we, as we, as we ask God to open our eyes so that we may see with Christian double vision, that we may see where God is moving in the mundane, the small, and the big areas of our lives, we have to recognize that even if we are granted sight, it's through God's power alone. It's through Jesus' grace alone. That's the only way we're able to see. Even in the story, Elisha didn't say, help him to be stronger, help him to be more faithful so that, or because I'm a prophet, please hear my prayers. It's no, Lord, you have to open his eyes. You have to open his eyes. But it started first and foremost in prayer. So we need to ask God in prayer to open our eyes. Now, again, if you're like me, sometimes you think, okay, well, I've done that before. (laughs) I really do try my hardest in prayer. I don't really even know where to begin. I, I don't know how to ask God in prayer. I don't necessarily know what I would say. or, or I, I struggle with that. I struggle with coming to God in prayer to ask him to open my eyes so that I can see him in all the situations. If that's the case, you're in good company because that's where the servant was. And so my encouragement to you is if, you're having, if, if you struggle with this, if you're having trouble, look for an Elisha. The servant didn't see on his own prayers. Elisha had to pray for him. All the servant did was come to Elisha and said, we're in trouble, what are we going to do? And Elisha prayed, Lord, open his eyes. And that was able to... So if, if, you're, if you struggle with praying yourself to ask God to open your eyes, find someone who you know is a prayer warrior, someone that you know and trust, and say, will you please pray for me? Will you please pray that the Lord would open my eyes to see more clearly, that God would open my eyes to see with Christian double vision? Whether it's through yourself or with someone else, we learn to see God moving because when we ask God to open our eyes in prayer. And then third, we need to practice looking by asking the question, where is God moving? Uh, first and foremost, I think through Scripture. Right? Each and every single story in Scripture, at the center of it, God is doing something. God is moving through a situation, through a person. God is doing something. So when we look at every story, when we read Scripture, one of the questions we can start to ask as we start to train our eyes to see is, where is God moving in this situation? How is he moving? And in and, and this particular situation, how does he move? When the, when, when the context is this, how does he move? And we can ask this, and we can see this in normal circumstances, right? When people in Scripture are just asking, hey, how do I make this decision? Uh, where do I need to go? Who do I need to speak to? When do I need to make this decision? We can look at the stories of Scripture and go, okay, God worked in this situation this way, in this situation this way, and it doesn't mean that that's how it's going to be for us, but at the very least what we're able to do is start to get a character of how God moves and in what circumstances does God move. And then that way we're able to hopefully when it comes to our situation be able to go, okay, I can see that God worked this way before. Maybe he will work this way, or maybe he is working this way in my situation now. But especially, I think, it's important that we look through Scripture and ask the question, where is God moving in times of struggle and in times of deep pain 
and in times of deep grief. Because I think what happens in those times of trouble, in those times of grief, one of the biggest questions that we ask, I think all of human history has asked, is where is God in this? It doesn't feel like God is here at all. In fact, it feels like God has completely abandoned me. I feel completely alone. Where is God moving in this? And I think the beauty of how God moves in Scripture is that there were people that felt that way. When Joseph was sold into slavery and almost left for dead by his brothers, and as he sat at the bottom of that well, I can almost guarantee you he asked, where is God in this? Uh, this is not how it was supposed to go. Where is God in this? And then as we continue to read the story, we realize that God used that and he used it to redeem people to himself. He, he saved thousands of lives and even reunited Joseph's family. And what we see is that every step of the way, God was moving. Even if we couldn't see it at the time, God was moving. And Joseph, at the end of all of it, even says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Last week when we talked about Gideon, when Gideon went to face the army that he was completely outnumbered by, you got to imagine there was at least one soldier who was like, what are we doing here? Where is God moving? It feels like we are, we are, we're doing something really foolish here. Where, how, how does God think that this is a good idea? But as we read the story and as we learn to count, like we talked about last week, we see God is moving even in the times where we think there's no possible way that he can the story this morning, again, the, the servant completely feels like, where is God? He's completely abandoned me. I'm working with this prophet. I'm serving this prophet. God is supposed to be protecting us. Where is he? And we see through the story, God is moving. And do you think that, that ser- this servant, before he was able to see, it, with this story, you've got to imagine that the servant saw the world completely differently after this. But in that moment, it was, where is God? When Jesus was on the cross, Jesus himself asked, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Where are you in this moment? And the people surrounding him, Jesus' mother, his disciples, are probably thinking the same thing. This was supposed to be our king. This was our Messiah. What is happening? Where is God in this scenario? And as the the story unfolds, we continue to see that in the moment where it felt like God was most absent in human history as Jesus was crucified, what we actually see is God was probably moving the most powerfully and most active than he's ever moved in human history in reclaiming humanity back to himself through the blood and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we can learn to see with the eyes of faith by practicing looking through stories of Scripture through the good times, through the boring and mundane times, and through the really bad times, we can start to get an idea of how God might be moving in our lives today. And we see that we're able to kind of get, uh, again, a, a, a foundation, a baseline of how God works through Scripture, and then we're able to go to our day-to-day lives. And we're able to ask, where is God moving? How is he moving? And then we don't come to that question with nothing at all. We're able to, through Scripture and through prayer, go, okay, I might have an idea of where God is moving. And one of the things I really want to encourage you guys to do this week is that as you're going through the the, the normal stuff, as you're on your morning commute to work, as you're washing your dishes, as you sit down to have a meal, whether it's by yourself or with others, ask this question, where is God in this? Right? Scripture tells us that God is always with us. We have this promise that we are never alone because God is always with us. So where is God in your drive to work? Where is God in those times that you're washing dishes and doing chores? Where is God currently moving in that time when you're sitting down to meal in times of confusion and in doubt? In your highest highs, where is God moving? In your lowest lows, where is God moving? 
We might not receive an answer immediately, and it might take some time to recognize the movement, but this is where we can start, where we can start to see with Christian double vision is asking that question, where is God in this? Where is God moving? And it might be, again, it might take a while. It might not happen overnight, but through prayer, recognizing that we're not always going to see clearly, and by asking the question over and over again, where is God? Where is God? We might finally start to actually see glimpses of where God is moving. And then <laughs> there might be a, a, a point in time where, the ser- just like the servant, all of a sudden he went from not seeing anything to seeing everything clearly. And again, you can imagine he never saw the world the same after that moment. And then, once again, if you're feeling like, hey, I recognize I'm not going to see clearly. I have prayed. I've asked someone to pray for me. And I'm asking that question, but I'm still having a difficult time seeing where God is moving. I'm having a difficult time seeing with Christian double vision. Again, like the servant, don't be afraid to ask an Elisha. Maybe you're having a hard time seeing where God is moving through a scenario. But what you might be able to do is find someone who you feel like has a good grasp on how God moves in their life and go, how do you see God moving in my life? Where do you see God moving in my life? Because i got to be honest, I'm having a difficult time, but where do you see it? And as we practice all of those things, again, step by step, day by day, I think what we learn to see is, is God moving more clearly. So in closing, I think the story of Elisha... Uh, we already talked about that, those three things. The story of Elisha, and I think the rest of the scripture tells us, look, there's more than meets the eye. In every single scenario, there's more than meets the eye. We, we, we come to a lot of situations, we come to a lot of scenarios with our single vision. And you know what? Sometimes it's hard to see where God is moving with single vision. Because it's not always easy to see where God is moving. But what I want to really, really encourage us this week to do is to not settle for single vision. Because, again, when we see with double vision, it changes everything. So let's learn to live with Christian double vision this week and, and obviously past this week because when we see with what we see normally and then we also see through the eyes of faith and through what God, how God is moving, it changes the way that, that we see the world. It changes the way we interact with people and it changes the way that we interact with our great God who loves us so much. So let's learn to live with Christian double vision. Let's pray.